Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. If you're looking for an easy way to keep advancing your career, your skills, and your opportunities... Consider becoming an Adweek Pro member. As an Adweek Pro member, you'll get unlimited access to Adweek content. You'll also be invited to member-only events, classes, and networking opportunities. Your employer might even cover the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com slash subscribe to learn about our current special rate for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com slash subscribe. Welcome to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, where we talk about marketing, media, and so much more. This is Co-M. David Greiner is off this week, but we are joined with travel reporter Ryan Barwick. Ryan, welcome back. Hey, Co. I, I miss seeing you in person, but it is great to hear your voice. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, it, it's it's been a long time since we've been back at the office. Um, we're going to talk about summer travel, travel ads. Um, where are you dialing in from today? I am calling you from suburban Delaware, uh, where I grew up. I'm one of the few Delawareans. Me and Joe Biden were the only ones that got out of Delaware. <laughs> so it's not too bad. Sometimes an Amish, like literally a horse and buggy will pass the window where I am because there's like an Amish community. So it's it's very cute yes. and quaint. Yes, yes. I used to cover Delaware, yeah, as that's you right. know, in my TV days. So, you know, yeah, I, I've seen my... Fair share of Amish furniture. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, I totally sightings forgot about as that. well. Yeah, yeah. So right now I'm calling in from um, Seattle. Uh, we both are normally located in New York. Normally, like, where would you be in Delaware anyway for the summer? We normally try to come down for like a week um, because my mom lives like ten minutes from the beach, uh, and it's it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful place to be in the summer. Was not planning on spending an entire summer down here, but that's become reality. And, you know, it's not a bad gig. I, I think I feel very fortunate to be here. Um, it's definitely like a resort touristy area. And I got to say, the beaches are pretty packed. Um, Rehoboth, mm-hmm. which is like the, the town, um, during the 4th of July weekend, they had a mask mandate for the entire weekend. Um, now, I don't think there's a ton of science that says, you know, beaches are unsafe, but basically to keep tourists away from these beaches and to keep them uh, kind of away from the community during during the holiday. So it's a it's a really interesting, uh, you know, tension right now as, as far as the beach tourist community. Obviously, that's how the community makes a ton of money uh, from these tourists and just trying to keep people safe and, and keeping, you know, everyone making sure everyone's wearing the masks and, you know, everyone's out in nature, social distancing. Uh, it's it's weird to see a little, you know, um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but like a perfect micro, microcosm of kind of you, what every travel brand and what every destination is going through right now in my own little hometown. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Those towns have, you know, those main streets and in your town, there's a boardwalk um, from, if I remember correctly, Rehoboth, Delaware did not have fireworks like many communities to try to keep people away, right? Yeah, They did not. Yeah, they, they didn't do fireworks. And in fact, Dewey Beach, which is the town right south of that, there's actually like a local millionaire that pays for it every year and he does it right off the right off the water. So I think technically the state told, couldn't tell him not to do it, but at like the last minute he decided not to do it, um, which, which is yeah. cool because, you know, it, it keeps the crowds um, a little, you know, it keeps the crowds away from the beach. It keeps everyone social distancing. Um, Weird summer, just an absolutely weird summer. Yeah, and what's weird is that, you know, people are slowly trying and making plans um, for for travel in a different way, perhaps. Um, You know, some people 
you know, do normally go to the beach um, or their beach house. Um, other people are getting on planes and escaping, um, kind of like I did. Uh, you know, and that means that brands and companies have to to pivot too, or they had to kind of strategize way ahead. So I know you've been, you know, on top of uh, some of the the bigger companies that are making changes and adjustments. Um, let's talk about TripAdvisor. What um, has happened for them to try to help speed recovery in this industry and for the the towns that um, rely on tourism? Yeah, it's really fascinating. So TripAdvisor as a brand had planned a, a relaunch, a rebrand, if you will, with a whole campaign. They're going to get a new website. They have a new app coming out. Um, and all of this was planned before the pandemic. Uh, and then the pandemic hits in March when everything was going to be rolled out. So obviously that threw everything up in the air. Um, and, and then instead, slowly, the brand has been kind of trickling these things out instead of doing one big campaign. Uh, and one thing they had planned was this service called Reco. And Reco is like like you and I, if we were planning a trip, we could go to Reco for $199 a flat fee we could purchase a travel advisor to plan out our trip. And we would give them a budget, how many days we were staying, what we wanted to do, and they would plan plan everything. Um, and, and that's in beta testing. They're still testing it out. There are a couple trip advisors on that platform right now. Uh, but it's so fascinating to consider that this, this business model that they had planned on releasing pre-pandemic um, – might really find a place in this new reality. I, I think a lot of travelers are, and at least from what I've heard in these interviews I've done, you know, a lot of travelers are kind of concerned as far as, well, can I go here? What are the rules when I get there? What's safe? What are the things I can do? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me know where I can go if I want to do a nature-focused trip or you know, if I want to go to a city that has a lot of public outdoor art. Uh, these, these experts, if you will, will be able to plan that. Um, and also, you know, the travel advisor community, uh, previously known as travel agents, not the actual business trip advisor, um, you know, they've been decimated by by this pandemic. And you know, a lot of people don't know they don't really get paid uh, to to cancel these vacations to to fight for refunds for their clients. So they've been working overtime and not really bringing in any money. So now that there's this platform, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, how much revenue it's able to generate for a trip advisor and and what it's able to do for the the travel advisor community one one travel advisor I interviewed who's in the beta testing you know when when I was speaking with her she she's used to getting five to six new clients a week and she hasn't had one since March so you think about that 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 just falls right off a cliff and I asked her I was like so what do you think of tripadvisor's new platform and she said look I have nothing to lose I have nothing to lose by being here. Um, she gets to keep all the commission from that booking. So it is almost like a win-win. Um, it, it'll be really interesting to see how this how this brand does uh, coming out of the pandemic. You know, I, I feel like every time I do these interviews, I say, look, I, I don't want you to pull out a crystal ball and predict the future. Uh, but really, these brands are trying to map out what the rest of their 2020 looks like and you know, whether there's going to be a real rebound by the new year. If you speak to any of the airline executives, they'll say two to three years right? Uh, for a sustainable recovery. Um, and unfortunately, not every business out there c- can wait that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure they're all looking at the looming kind of September timeline, right? The airlines mm-hmm. uh, as such uh, with, with the loans and, and whatnot. But um, what I find interesting um, about Reco is two things: the fee, even though it's in beta mode. However, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, the travel um, agents find a, a new purpose and new market for this um, for what they do, and then mm-hmm. people have new questions, um, new travel inquiries than ever before. Um, somebody who they can trust and rely on when there are so many unknowns. Um, so if I had a crystal ball, not that you asked me, but I feel like this could, <laughs> this has a real place and purpose. Um, and I'm interested to, to see, you know, what, how it evolves, especially if, you know, eventually they get AI or chatbots um, into, mm. into their software. 
Um, let's switch over to Airbnb. Um, sure. I have friends uh, who have, you know, they're quarantining, as they call it. And they're kind <laughs> of uh, uh, going to Airbnbs and rent- renting them for longer, um, you know, maybe months versus days from before, uh, from our pre-pandemic days. Um, are, are Is Airbnb doing well? And um, I know they had you know, a massive layoff um, yeah. earlier this year, and they continue to kind of reshape everything. How are they doing? And um, what is their new target and goal? Yeah, so, so far, and, and just in the first couple weeks, months of the pandemic, Airbnb, like every other travel brand, really took it on the chin because consumers weren't going anywhere. But now that it's been some time, uh, you know, there, there were there were a lot of questions as to whether it, were going, it was going to be the main hotel brands that were going to see uh, the, the travel return first because those are, those are trusted legacy brands. Marriott and Hilton, they've been around forever. Um, there's a strong corporation kind of behind any initiative and all of these cleaning initiatives. Where with Airbnb, it's really down to the individuals and how they take care of their ind- individual you know, stays and homes. Um, but I think it's pretty clear to say now, now that we're looking at the end of June, early July, Airbnb has been killing it. Uh, according to AirDNA, which is a um, a company that tracks short-term rental uh, purchases and stays, Airbnb and, and Verbo, which is the other business that does short-term rentals, they're up about 20% over 2019. So 20% more than they were doing in 2019 when there was no pandemic and people were terrified. Um, It's very obvious that people feel way more comfortable getting in their own personal car and driving to a destination that is anywhere between two and six hours, something not necessarily in their neighborhood, but almost within a drive to destination, whether that's in a rural community whether that's in the mountains or something like that, or whether that's near near the ocean or a beach or mm-hmm. something, a coastal community. Um, but Airbnb, and, and that's that's with almost no marketing, which I think is really a testament uh, to you know how you know when, when when these things become verbs, like like we're zooming or we're going to Google <laughs> something, people know that Airbnb is that option, um, and they can find a stay in a community. So I, I think it served the brand really well. It's interesting that they've been able to avoid the stigma that the hotel industry um, has been hit with as far as, oh, you know, we don't, we don't want to be surrounded by a ton of people. We want to have our own house that's empty, that we that we trust whoever's there. Even though you don't really know who stayed there before and, you know, you're, you're there, it puts a lot of trust into the host's hands. But, um, yeah, I think it's pretty clear to say that consumers uh, are really getting behind the Airbnb brand during this pandemic. Now, does that make up for a couple months without any profit? You know, it's, it's hard to say. That's a pretty, pretty uh, deep hole that they dug during the pandemic, like every other travel brand. But it, I, Airbnb so far has performed really well. Yeah. Um, you know, my brother is starting or has started a new job at a um, Korean hotel chain um, here in Seattle. And they're, you know, planning to open in September kind of as planned and we'll see what happens. But then, you know, you see other places like you reported, um, you know, Marriott starting to see occupancy levels rise. So it, it's um, interesting to to track and follow. Um, I know that you also found out that Verbo, um, you know, most of the new bookings, I think 82% uh, up in Delaware uh, yeah. over, over last year. So that's a lot of... Um, yeah. New families and visitors um, to the state who might not be going to the traditional, you know, yeah. fries with vinegar <laughs> on the boardwalk, <laughs> but but still bringing you know money in um, some in some other way. Yeah, and it's you know everything has to be you to, to have some perspective on all of this uh, when we're talking about hotels and the airline like i feel like I, i've written the story a couple times that you know tsa traffic is rising um and that's true people are starting to travel more but it's nowhere near where it was last year right it's the, the hotel occupancy is rising but it's mm-hmm. nowhere near where it was last year um and i think you know when when we're out of the summer and we're back towards the fall and the winter 
um, when things kind of settle and people aren't naturally travel traveling as much, then we'll really see uh, the damage of this pandemic and we'll see that longer road towards recovery. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, before, I think it was too soon, but you know, if you still have a bucket list or you've thought of a new place, where would you want to go um, on a plane? On a plane? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I for for whatever reason, and I've always kind of been a Disney nerd, like on the <laughs> down low, like when I was in high school. Um, lately, I've like fallen down like weird Disney rabbit holes with like the theme parks and everything. Um, I think it would be like I am a very cautious person. Uh, you know, I'm still very much in the social distancing. Uh, you know, wearing a mask at all times, washing my hands a ton, as we I guess all should. But no judgment to any of these people traveling. Obviously, um, I'm not ready to go to a Disney World yet. But yeah. looking at all of the travel influencers that I follow on Instagram and everyone that's in the parks right now, which are running at a reduced capacity. You know, I got to say, I'm kind of jealous. Like, it looks really interesting to be there when they're pretty empty. Um, and then also, I have a ton mm-hmm. of family in Florida. Like, I miss being with uh, my family members and spending the summer with them and, you know, chilling out and just kind of having a lazy week. I, I miss that a little bit. But, I, you know, I'm not really hankering as much as as I thought I would be. Um I, I saw that Carnival has uh, one of their cruise brands, Aida, is is running the first week of August. Uh, not going to be a ton of Americans on that cruise, but they're, they're going to have their first sale uh, the first week of August. So that you know, I I can't say I'm jealous. I don't wish I was on that, but but we are starting to see these kind of brands, um, you know, in places that are not in the United States, which is going through its own COVID, you know, reality. Uh, we we are starting to see a bit of a return there. Um, let's, let's, uh, I, I asked you because, you know, there have been some really interesting ads and I feel like going through them, a lot of it is just like a beautiful ASMR experience. (laughs) Wouldn't you say so? Like sounds of nature, water, wind, it's, uh, it really is like, um, soothing. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to see, you know, obviously these places, uh, for better or worse, they still have budgets. A lot of this stuff could have been planned, um, you know, pre-pandemic. Uh, and, you know, they got to get the word out there. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Iceland's Collect Your Screams uh, campaign <laughs> that w- we ran on Adweek about two days ago. I thought this was such an interesting tourism campaign. And, you know, I, looking at it, it, it's perfect for the COVID reality but at the same time, I can understand how they had written the script and had prepared to shoot this uh, before everything fell apart, right? Like, it kind of makes sense, but I find it it's such a creative campaign. And this is the stuff that as I'm watching, I'm like, oh, God, I want to get out of this house. I, I want to go to Iceland. I want to be in nature. I want to pet a reindeer. Yes, let's listen to a little bit of this. Um, and yes, there are screams, but it's still kind of very relatable. Oh, oh, yes. Ah! 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 Yeah, so every time somebody screams, they get transported, you know, to somewhere around Iceland. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it, it does, um, it, it, it could have been planned. And then they just add a line of like, hey, you have been through a lot, yeah. like a lot more than you planned for. Um, so why not, why not go to Iceland where you can just let it out, right? I know. I'm so I'm so jealous. I would love to go to Iceland. Uh, and I would love to scream in a forest. I mean, I guess I could do that social distance, but a lot of, a lot of 
hills to climb to get there. But yeah, this that looks incredible. Yeah, speaking of forests, <laughs> uh, there's a, another Nordic country um, taking an online initiative that you wrote about. Famously happy Finland. Um, let's play a little bit of that before you explain what's really happening here. Okay, so who are these happiness guides and and what's going on here, Ryan? Yeah, so this was a campaign titled Rent a Finn. Uh, It was run by Finland. And the the whole shtick behind it, um, which, by the way, shtick is very effective for an advertisement. I don't mean that in a degrading way. Uh, Finland is the happiest country in the entire world, according to the United Nations. So Finland is trying to export their happiness. you know, obviously, with the whole COVID world, this kind of got changed. Now it became a virtual rent-a-fin thing. But basically, the, the country and some of its quote-unquote ambassadors would match up a, a Finnish person uh, and virtually teach them their ways to relax, be out in nature, how to do a sauna with a Finn, how to eat like a Finn. And the the actual campaign itself is so so fascinating, shot so beautifully. Um it just when you when you watch these things, it just makes it so much easier to digest um, our own quarantine because you see that there is beauty out there. Uh, you just you know yeah. you'll get to yeah. it eventually if we can all survive this. This reminds me of you know kind of that Danish idea of hickey or oh, yeah, I think that's yeah, how you yeah, say yeah. it of like you know coziness. Yeah. But I don't know is it is it as effective to have this you know virtually. Um, you know, when, when it, it, or does it kind of make you even more sad, right? That you can't, um, benefit, it has to be exported and you can't be experiencing it. Yeah. You know, I think tourism, uh, these destination marketing organizations, the tourism boards, you know, they just want to get eyeballs. They want to get people to come, you know, to, to consider a Finland or an Iceland as far as, uh, travelers planning a vacation. So anything you can do to just crawl in someone's mind, and remind them that, you know, Finland exists, Iceland exists, I think is successful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hokkaido Island is trying to get on your list. Oh, I love uh, this. Because the Japanese tourism is down 99.9%, which I'm sure many countries are feeling the pain. Um, Let's take a listen. What do you love about this, Ryan? What what really appeals to you? I mean, for me, it's like, oh man, Japan was supposed to be on my September, you know, calendar, and oh, really? I want to oh. be in an on- an onsen, like a bath, like a you know, I don't yeah. care if there's snow. The the sauna <laughs> the sauna was hard to watch because I want that more than anything. But also remember, I'm staying in rural Delaware, and there was a video of sushi. <laughs> And I can't remember the last time I had really good sushi. And, and that that was a pang. Uh, and that'll probably be the first thing I, I order when I get to New York. Uh, and I, I can splurge on some good sushi. Yeah, let's, let's end in New York. Um, there's a tourism, uh, there's a campaign from Tourism Bureau, NYC and company um, that really, you know, highlights locals. And I feel like it's a very... Um, New York-centric piece. Here's some of the spot.
Okay, so this is slated for summer and fall. While even though we're not there, um, New York is going to be in the the recover stage. Um, what are we What are we looking at here? What are we trying to to feel? Yeah. So uh, the city and its DMO, New York City and Company, they released their roadmap. Uh, that's what they're calling it. Their, their roadmap towards recovery. How how the city is going to begin to rebound uh, from the pandemic. Obviously, New York City was absolutely slammed. Um, not a ton of tourists coming to New York right now, even though you can actually look in Times Square. I was looking at the the other day on a live cam. It was actually kind of busy, which was surprising. Um, but but the city is going to be relying on its locals, basically saying, "Look, you're still here. Um, you've been cooped up for a couple of months. Why don't you get out in your neighborhood?" Why don't you go walk around, see, see what you can find, try some new restaurants, maybe go to the neighborhood right next to you, see what's going on there. Start start exploring um, your own communities because New York is basically empty. There's not a ton of tourists. If you've ever wanted to be, go to Times Square when there aren't any tourists, now is the time if you're going to do it in a safe, responsible way. Um, so it absolutely fascinating yeah they're still rolling this stuff out uh the city's going to be making like neighborhood itineraries to to entice and to inform consumers um where to go they're going to be working with businesses uh there's probably not going to be a, a restaurant week in the in the way the city used to do it but they're going to be doing some mm-hmm. version of a restaurant week where the city will be working with restaurants to do some sort of discount some sort of um uh, deal to entice consumers to spend some money on their their local haunts, uh, and I, I think it's it's fascinating because it's New York, right? Like everything the city does is interesting. Um, when you've just gone through something like the pandemic, uh, it'll it'll be really interesting to see how long it really is before we get those international tourists that the city, city is so dependent on um, from a tourism perspective. Yeah, and I think what this spot does a really good job at is kind of really reminisce and capture the energy, right, that the city kind of lost, um, especially as people uh, like you and I moved out. But it does make me nostalgic in that kind of more New York City high energy way of, you know, you see, you know, the the coffee cup from the deli, you know, the the carts, Um, you see uh, people at the beach, um, that very iconic ice cream truck, bagels, like things that, um, you know, still exist, uh, with, with, with hopefully, um, the locals who have stayed and can have some kind of what they're trying to do, you know, some kind of staycation of sorts, um, in a, in a safe, renewable kind of way. So, um, you know, I don't know, uh, when we'll all be, be back in New York uh, at the our main office. <laughs> it, it made me want to be. It made me want to be, want to be back there. And that's the other like weird caveat to this. It's like you're not just convincing tourists to come to New York. You're also convincing some of the locals to come back, right? To yep to come back. And I, I find that that angle really really fascinating. Yeah. Well, Ryan, um, do you have any last thoughts before we let you go? Uh, stay well. It's good to hear your voice. Stay safe, <laughs> sanitize as much as possible. Yes, we still have, you know, at least 20 seconds of hand washing and um, <laughs> six feet of social distancing and umpteen hours to reconsider all of our <laughs> priorities and plans. Um, but thank you, Ryan Barwick, our travel reporter, for, for joining us. And um, stay safe out there, too. Peace. Have a good one. And uh, we will be back for our next segment is a reprise of our Ad Week Together on the Future of Culture with the managing partners of Team Epiphany. We'll be right back. Are you an Ad Week Pro member? If so, we hope you've been enjoying unlimited access to Ad Week content, including special reports on the future of marketing's hottest categories. If you're not an Ad Week Pro member, now's the perfect time to join. We've got a ton of amazing member-only events and resources on the way, and you won't want to miss them. Your employer might even be interested in covering the cost of your membership. Visit adweek.com offer to find our current special offer for new Adweek Pro members. That's adweek.com offer.
Today we have from Team Epiphany, the managing partners, Coltrane Curtis and Lisa Chu. Hi, guys. Hi. I'm Coltrane. That's Lisa. <laughs> if you didn't know. <laughs> um, so, you know, we are going to first get into who you are and what you do. Wow. Um, you want to start? Um, well, first, we're married. And sure. I, I started an agency 15 years ago, 16 years ago, but I work for her. So I'm allowing her to start first. But- so Coltrane started the agency 15, 16 years ago. Um, and as most agencies are, they lie their way to winning the business. And then he needed someone to do the work. So we were dating at the time. And he was like, hey, don't you want to like come and work here and do this work? And I was like, I don't know about this. But yeah, that's kind of how we started the business uh, with this guy, George Fertitta, he helped us out at the time uh, and it really looked out for us. We were a small agency, four people sitting around a conference room, table, one phone, one Ethernet cord, making it work. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a story of just like good old American muscle where you kind of like build something, you become good at it and you hope that, you know, you know, your skill set allows you to kind of earn new opportunities. Um, I think what was really interesting, Lisa really talked about it, but it was like, you know, we were able to barter offer space, you know, with bigger agencies kind of like selling cultural currency to them um, and then bartering space. And so for the first seven, seven, eight years of our business, um, literally that relationship happened. And so what we were able to do was really, you know, understand that the cost of business is what puts you out of business and being able to mitigate against kind of like those overhead costs. And then also being able to give home to some of our creative friends in New York City knowing the fact that they were either leaving a job or looking for a space to kind of like a creative space. So this is kind of like pre-we work, right? Um, and we kind of created this kind of like oasis of, of creativity and safeness uh, right. in New York City. And the business has grown to be about, you know, 30 mil in size, about 80 employees, New York, L.A. And um, you're looking at the only two owners, right? Um, and so we did it the old school way, right? Like we earned it, right? So, yeah, uh, and, and two people of color, right? Managing this um, company, like you said, you've grown and survived and um, hopefully <laughs> thrived, right? Throughout throughout the years, you have a very diverse makeup in your workforce. I want to get a little bit deeper into that cultural currency that you're talking about. You had a specific kind of mission and outlook and perspective when you started. Um, and it feels like now, you know, do you feel like you're more valued for the perspective that you bring and then what yeah. you do to try to enlighten people, disrupt how things are being done. Yeah. Um, can we go first real quick? So I'll go. Um, so the first thing is my dad ran an agency um, for 25 years. Uh, we have two kids, Count and Ellington. They're two and eight. And I grew up in my dad's agency, and I also knew that that was one of the things that helped create who I am. And so our kids are going to grow up in our agency. And so I think when you build something, you know, whose goals are a little bit different than a P&L, um, you know, we want to create an environment that's not only, you know, influences everything that we do and the work that we do, but also an environment that our kids will actually grow up in. And being of, you know, um, of, you know, multicultural descent, she and I both, um, it was just very important for us to put those different personalities and those different interests and those people who are driving culture um, in one space to kind of create work. And so for us, we've always been diverse. We don't know how not to be, you know, we're a reflection of our culture and our community. Um, But it was just something that was very important to us from a, from a, from a early, early age. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I feel like often, um, especially with big companies, they always like make you fill out a questionnaire when you, first win the business like what do you do to incorporate diversity into your company how diverse are you like what are the percentages what's the breakdown and my answer is really simply we don't need to try we don't have a program we are who we are we've always been this way we've always hired people because they do great work but we've always hired people that we can relate to that can relate to our work it's hard to interject people who don't get it um and we've tried that before. We've, you know, trial and error a lot over the last 16 years. Um, you know, you hire this person who's like a big wig at this agency and they come over and they totally don't get the work or the culture. Um, we run our company like a family. You know, it's very personal. We take it very seriously. 
but we also really care about the people. They're not just like a number. We generally care about every baby that's born, every marriage that happens, every family like situation that someone needs to step out for. Like you don't take it as like, oh, okay, well that person's disposable just because they're not available. And right. diversity, and diversity in thought is also just influences all of our pieces of business, right? Like so you know, when you say bring your whole self to work, like I don't want somebody living like, a, a, you know, a lie during the middle of the week and, and living it up on the weekend. I want them to bring their whole self because, you know, what their interests are actually influences all of the work that we do. Like, you know, um, you know, you think about running an agency for 15 years, like I started when I was 30. Right. You know, like what I look like at 30, you know, um, is different. <laughs> what I look like at 30 is a lot different. Right. But like the reality is it's like, it keeps us youthful. It keeps us sharp. It keeps us on not what's happening now, but what's happening next. Right. And it's our job to give our clients, you know, a glimpse into the future, not something that they would necessarily read in the times. Right. Like if we're reporting the news, then read the news. Right. It's for us to kind of predict what the news is going to be writing about. And then how can we kind of like take that and then create kind of like branded programs because of that insight. Right. It's OK. But Lisa and I still look, you know. <laughs> 10 years younger than we are but yeah. <laughs> that's just a joke um but i want to have hair so you know like, a lot of hair a lot of hair <laughs> um you know i i think you now have a lot of case studies to show what having you know a culture of diversity um and a commitment to diversity it's just like an unspoken accepted uh rule or base um, for example, I want to bring up recently, you know, you worked on um, with HBO for Insecure's uh, season four, a block party. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't think that unless, you know, you maybe were a super fan of the show and part of the community that you might have come up with the idea and executed it in specific ways. Um, how does this example, you know, show the strength of diversity and thought? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing is like, you know, when we launched that, so where we've been working with HBO for eight or nine years now, um, but for a while, and I would just look at ourselves as an extension of their team, you know, um, we've grown with them, they've grown, um, you know, but when you really think about block party and community, you know, when we first started working on Insecure five, four or five years ago, four seasons ago, right? Um, you know, it was, we've been doing block parties for them since inception, you know, it's now just become part of you know, scripted, it's scripted, right? So season four is really about, you know, Issa and kind of like creating a block party. But year year one, we did a block party in Brooklyn. Year two, we did a block party in Inglewood. Year three, we did a block party, you know, at LAFC for 4,500 people, right? And then we were planning on doing four block parties this year in four different markets. And then, you know, the world literally flipped and we had to pivot to virtual. Um, and so we were one of the first agencies um, to kind of like take a crack at it and it literally became kind of the blueprint to follow in terms of how to do it well. Um, and little did we know, um, at the end of the season, we closed the season with a virtual block party, too. And so when you're really thinking about community, what is community? Community is not really thinking about self. It's about bringing everyone with you on a voyage. Um, it's about responsibility to your neighborhood, your block, to, you know, to, you know, the future of your community. Um, and I think that block party piece was... Um, um, it's, it's really weird when your strategy becomes kind of like your tagline for it. But when you really think about, you know, the success of in, Insecure, it's about a community and a village that's great to watch, but it's also behind the camera, the community that East has built. Right. And so what we wanted to do was vibe off of that and then kind of create something. But I think the big challenge and a testament to Lisa's team was the fact that they were able to pivot a traditional, right. I, I use that word loosely a traditional production team um, and then being able to switch gears quickly and then being able to, to kind of produce a polydisciplined virtual experience that had everything from performances to, you know, live chats on Twitter with Issa to seating programs. So um, when you think about it, you know, um, you're only able to do that with a team who understands the importance of an insecure um, and it's an incredibly diverse team too. Yeah. And Lisa, I, I want to ask you about, you know, what other brands, companies can think about when, you know, shifting to virtual. How do you keep the aspect of community and culture in place? Um, any specific recommendations or, you know, is it really that holistic view from the top that guides strategy and execution? 
I think it is a holistic view, but I think they, the brands need to understand who their core audience is and stay true to that. Like Insecure has, in season four, especially such a big following that there's little touch points that you have to stay true to or nothing works. You know, I think a lot of people have pivoted to a virtual something, a party, a cocktail or whatever, tune in. And some of them are great and some of them are just falling a little flat because it's just, it doesn't mean anything to the people that they're targeting. And I think that also you have to understand that that audience has to shift with you and tune in virtually. So that is also another push. So I think, you know, the strategy has to stay true to the core of like what the brand is and, you know, who the target is. Yeah. Let's talk about another example. Um, you know, I think there's a shift in how everyone is really thinking about influencers too. Yeah. Uh, you guys have uh, an upcoming campaign yeah. where you know, you're tapping into the new nostalgic cultural, new and nostalgic cultural trend of drive-ins, but the influencers are different this time around. What's, what's going on with that culture? Yeah. So um, top of this year, you know, we won, I would say the biggest piece we've ever won a business, which was uh, influencer marketing for Audi, you know? Um, and, you know, we've been working behind the scenes on influencer strategy, not just the individual, but the community that they belong to, you know, and, you know, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't get an opportunity to put an event in the world. Right. But who do we know? How do we know that, you know, six months starting the business that, you know, we were producing our first event, you know, through quarantine, you know, through literally, you know, a, a, a race revolution that we're having in the country. And we're actually producing a drive-in experience, not a movie theater, but a drive-in experience with our Audi client uh, this week in L.A., um, where 60 influencers who are actually influential, right? Like, not like a professional influencer, but when you think about the influencers that we're really looking towards now are our frontline workers um, and also supporting, supporting small black businesses. And so, you know, when you really think about how can we traverse this world that we live in, if everybody does their little part um, and for ours, it's a little, it's entertainment. It's a little bit of a distraction. Right. Um, and so what we've decided to do is identify 30 small black business owners and 30 um, frontline workers in LA that we've been kind of like supporting throughout um, and give them something to look forward to. And so we're seating them with a vehicle uh, for a weekend, uh, for a week, actually. And then they are tasked with the day of the performance to actually go to an undisclosed location in their cars, having a safe, socially distanced drive-in performance and Kehlani's performing, right? And so when you really think about it, it's, you know, it's something that is difficult to do under any circumstances. Um, and now it's, you know, what was easy before um, is difficult and what was difficult is impossible. And of course, we pick difficult. Um, but for us, it's not impossible. We're really excited about it. But it's really about just, you know, the team digging deep, wanting to do something, understanding that the significance of the experience. Yes, um, it's going to be a great Audi piece, but it's also something that helps our culture and our community. Um, yeah. And we're we're. You know, at times I'm always I'm, I struggle with like, who do I work for? Right. Is it is it for the brand um, or is it for the community and culture? And the reality is, is it's for both. And sometimes we have to answer to community before we answer the brand. And that right. becomes a test for a great experience. But that's great when it becomes win win. Right. And the, the brand see that the community feels that and you have this overall great kind of ripple effect. Um, which happens with influence and culture and community. Um, you know, you talked about how uh, we need entertainment and also how you've struggled with a variety of things. We've all struggled with a variety of things. Um, what are the kind of, you know, in the midst of all this new business and work that we're trying to get out and think about in new ways, um, what are the difficult conversations that you've been having, whether it's internally or with um, clients or even, you know, with your community? Hmm. Me, I mean, you. I think, Me? I you go. I mean, I think with our community, it's not a conversation that's new to anyone. I think everyone's been talking about it for most of their lives. I feel like for our, some of our clients, not all our clients, they are asking us to help out, you know, help out. What can they do differently? How can they change things? What can they do to participate? And some people, it's cutting a check. Other people, it's higher within. Other and others, it's like do more, be more, like find something that really you know is going to make a difference for you. And let's just be honest: some brands don't really want to do anything but cut a check. But that's okay too because you need to cut a check. 
because somebody needs that check, right? So I think it's just different tiers of help. Um, I mean, that as you, and I feel, I feel like for our internal group, Coltrane, and I struggled with that for a minute because we didn't know what to say. It was hmm. so heart-wrenching and we just didn't have the words and we really, for the first time, had nothing to say on our team meeting. And then we were like, we have to get back to you because there's really, like, we're, we're stuck. Yeah, and I feel like that's okay, you know? Like, I think what we really look to help kind of direct our clients is how we kind of direct ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not knowing what to do is okay as long as you're having the conversation. And we continue to have that conversation, you know? And that conversation led us to, you know, hey, like, a lot of our kids, I call them kids because I'm 45, <laughs> and average age of the agency is around 27, so, like, some of them could be my kids. Um, but, you know, the kids were protesting. You know, they're peacefully protesting, um, and which we were happy to find out. Um, but what we also realized was that 100 percent of them have never been arrested um, while protesting and doing anything. And so what we really did is we looked deep and we looked at them as like, hey, what happens if one of our kids grow up and get you know, arrested? What would we want to happen for them? Um, and so what we did is we actually, um, you know, work with our legal counsel, um, gave everybody one, gave everybody at the agency um, our home number. Um, our legal counsel cell number, we put money in escrow. And then if anybody was to be arrested, um, that they can reach out to us 24 hours a day um, wow. and we would have to actually help them get out. And what that actually did was that it was very small. It was something that was very specific to us. But if you can help one person out, that's one more person that, you know, is that has the potential of making the world a better place. And so we give our clients the same feedback. Right. Um, you know, a lot of them try to move as big as they are. And what we explain to them is that if you move smaller, and you roll your sleeves up, that can have greater impact than the, the, the big check that you can cut. And so a lot of times we really look inward to, ex- to execute externally. Um, but honestly, it, it really just came from counsel with my wife. And she was, you know, well, everybody's like, what are you going to make a statement? You know, and I was like, well, you know, our existence is resistance. Our existence is protest. You know, when you think about our agency and what it means and how we're configured, you know, um, you know, how we're comprised. Um, the fact that we exist is protest, right? And so, you know, the kids were like, we want to do something. I was like, all right, well, let's listen and figure out how we can support them. And so, you know, one thing led to another thing led to another thing, but everything that we did internally at the agency is now affecting external work that we're doing for a client. Yeah. And I think what you bring up is, you know, listening as leadership, compassionate conversations, Mm -hmm. and also taking anything that's big, right? We learn about this in any project that we do breaking it them down into small steps. So I guess my last question for you guys is, you know, what other maybe advice or example do you want to share? Mm. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, like I, I pitch capabilities three times a day to brands, you know, um, and, 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 you know, it's, 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 it, you can't, pitch those things and you can't do anything unless you are comprised of really incredible, talented people. Um, and when you really look at like, you know, you're rendered useless without the people that are on your team, you look at them a little bit different. You look at them as family, you look at them as it's, you know, they work with us, but it's our job to be responsible for everything that they work towards, right? Like people work to provide for others And it's not our job to just provide for opportunity for the people that work for us. It's our job to listen and understand why they work and be and be connected to that level. And, you know, I think that that. I I would just say that philosophy of running a business is challenging when you're big. Right. And so for us, it's challenging now because we've never dreamed that we would be 80 people. Right. But the size isn't what represents or is indicative of a successful agency for us, right? Um, and my wife always keeps me particularly on the right side of these things, right? Because you kind of like lose, I'm winning business. How are we going to do it? How are we going to execute it? But why are we doing it? Why do we want to do it, right? We're doing it because like it galvanizes us. It brings us together. And I think that this time that we're in now, I think one of the hardest things for us is the fact that we just can't go to work. The fact that we are now like literally been living without the people that literally she and I sit in every single job interview for the last 15 years. These are our friends. These are our family. These are our people. And so for us not to be able to be connected with them has been really tough. But I would say the biggest thing is, is respect the people who work for you and, and, and 
and understand what drives them and what makes them good. Because, um, you know, when we have average tenure at Team Epiphany, it's almost like six years for employees and clients, which is unheard of, right? Um, and for us, we don't know any other way, you know? I had to stop, like, like I, you know, letting people go because I would be the guy that would be crying in, 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 you know, in those meetings because I don't want to let anybody go, you know? But the reality is, is, you know, I'm connected to everyone. And it really just starts with my wife making sure that we sit on the right side of things, you know, um, because the business can sometimes overshadow, you know, the personal piece. I mean, yeah, that's my one advice is the same advice I give to everyone about everything. Just be on the right side of life. Like, I feel like running a business, there's so many ways to be on the wrong side of life and do people dirty or, you know, look at people not as humans, but as numbers in I always tell culture, even like when somebody messes up and you're like ready to like fire them, I'm like, listen, I get it, but we have to like be on the right side of life. You can't just like kick somebody out the door. Like you have to do right by them. They have a family, they have a life, they have things that they have. Like, and I'm big on karma. Like <laughs> being nice. Chinese, I'm huge advocate <laughs> of karma. Like putting bad things out there will come back on us in so many different ways. So I always tell them like, even if clients are coming at us crazy or doing something crazy, like just try to be on the bright side of life and it will work out. I promise you. The yin and yang of life, of <laughs> yep, yep. life is right here. Yep. And it has <laughs> like right integrity right in between, right? The yin and yang. But I want to thank you guys, Coltrane Curtis and Lisa Chu from Team Epiphany uh, for spending some time with us. I wish we had more time because um, this is an important conversation, but I really appreciate it. And good luck on the campaign this week. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll take that luck. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please feel free to subscribe or tell a friend. Leave us a review. Send us a note, podcast at adweek.com. This episode was produced by yours truly, edited by Lane McGibney with theme music by home. We want to thank Ryan for being our in-house guest and for Team Epiphany for coming on to also join the conversation. I'm Co-M. Have a great week.